Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number five, Judges chapter three. Last week in Judges chapter two, the Lord told Israel that as a result of their blatant idolatry, that was both a cause and an effect from their refusal to obey Jehovah's instructions to drive out or kill all those inhabitants of Canaan, he was going to allow many of those pagan nations to stay rooted in that land. And they were going to be a thorn for Israel. And this was a punishment that was also a trial for Israel. And the trial was not in the sense of it being a difficulty that they had to endure, but rather it was literally a judicial trial that would be held in God's heavenly courtroom. He'd look at that evidence in the form of their behavior and acquit or convict based on whether they followed his commandments while mired in the severe conditions they found themselves in or not. Acquittal meant peace and rest and security in the promised land. Conviction meant removal from the promised land. But as I said in last, last week, in no ways were Israel, past, present, or future, ever to think that because God severely punished his people, that this was to be interpreted as him revoking, abolishing, changing, replacing, or otherwise breaking his covenant with them. Now we're going to find that the book of Judges is just packed with powerful expressions and principles that will cause us to go pretty slowly and carefully through every verse. Otherwise, we're going to blow right by and miss the impact. And that impact is so relevant to us, the contemporary body of believers, that I truly believe that the book of Judges ought to be undertaken as a church-wide study. Maybe as a launching point for a true revival. I see this book as a timely clarion call similar to the ones brought to God's people by the likes of Isaiah and Hosea, Jeremiah and Zechariah. A clarion call that, to his people that resulted in these prophets being met with ridicule and persecution and told that they essentially were spoil sports. Right, who brought messages of gloom that nobody wanted to hear. After all, Israel was the redeemed of God. What else mattered? Okay, I will tell you frankly that the book of Judges is difficult for me to teach. More than any other. Because it is such an extended time of depravity and darkness for God's people. Uh, God's people. You know, most Pastors and teachers actually avoid this book for that very reason. They and I well recognize that you can all rather easily turn off to a weekly series of disasters and failures and doom and dire warnings because to be uplifted and given hope is what we all seek in the deepest reaches of our soul. Over and over as I study this, and even when I'm trying to sleep at night, 
I keep hearing like this, like an unrelenting ringing in my ears from being too close to a loud noise. I hear this small voice over and over asking, Do you have eyes to see? Do you have the ears to listen? So I just pass that question along to you as I wrestle with it in my own life. There is hope in Judges, but it's an implied hope. It's a hope for a better future after a long and catastrophic time of people doing what was right in their own eyes and therefore by definition being out of the will of God at their own choice. The hope is for revival. The hope is for regeneration. The hope is for God's people to awaken from their self-imposed delusions. Here in Judges chapter 3, we're going to see the first three Shoftim, Judges, presented to us. And we're going to see how they're characterized as as imperfect saviors, but saviors nonetheless. We'll see that even when followers of the God of Israel go far astray, that the Lord not only leaves that door open for their return, as did the father of the prodigal son, but that Jehovah pursues them, pursues us, as the prodigal son's father did not. That the Lord so loves his people that he has pity on them, even on the midst, when they're in the midst of some heinous trespassing against him. Depravity offered up as sacrifices to him. People behaving without shame, reveling in their adulterous affairs with other gods. Now, if the hope that God saves and forgives when his people repent isn't hope for you, for us, I don't know what is. So I ask you to do something that believers aren't asked to do very much. Be sober of mind at the same time you are joyful for your status with God through Christ. Hear the hard things. Take to heart the stinging things that the Lord has to say to you, even though it may not be what you want to hear or what's easy to hear. So let's turn now to Judges chapter 3. 272 in the complete Jewish Bible. Judges chapter 3. These are the nations which Adonai allowed to remain in order to put to test all the people of Israel who had not known any of the wars with Canaan. This was only so that the generations of Israel had previously known nothing of war might learn about it. These nations consisted of the five chiefs of the Pelishtim, the Philistines, all the Canaanites, the Sidonites and the Hivites who lived in the hills of Lebanon between Mount Baal Hermon and the entrance to Hamath. There they stayed to test whether Israel would pay attention to the commands of God, which through Moses he had ordered their ancestors to obey. 
So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Prezi, the Hevi, the Yavusi, taking their daughters as their wives, giving their own daughters to their sons, and serving their gods. Thus the people of Israel did what was evil from Adonai's perspective, forgot Adonai their God, and served the Baals and the Asherim. Therefore the anger of Adonai blazed against Israel, and he gave them over into the hands of Kushan Rishatayim, king of Aram Naharayim. And the people of Israel served Kushan Rishatayim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to Adonai, Adonai raised up a savior for the people of Israel, and he rescued them. This was Othniel, the son of Caleb's younger brother, Kenaz. Now the spirit of Adonai came upon him, and he judged Israel. Then he went out to war, and Adonai gave Kushan Rishatayim, king of Aram, into his hands. His power prevailed against Kushan Rishatayim. So the land had rest for 40 years until Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. But the people of Israel again did what was evil from Adonai's perspective. So Adonai strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil from Adonai's perspective. In confederation with the people of Ammon and Amalek, Eglon went out and defeated Israel, capturing the city of Date Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. But when the people of Israel cried out to Adonai, Adonai raised up for them a savior. Ehud, the son of Gerah, from the tribe of Benjamin, a left-handed man. The people of Israel appointed him to take their tribute to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made himself a double-edged sword 18 inches long and strapped it to his right thigh underneath his clothes. Then he presented the tribute to Eglon, the king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. When he had finished presenting the tribute, he dismissed the people who had brought it. But he himself, after reaching the quarries of Gilgal, went back and said, King, I have a secret message for you. The king commanded silence. All of his attendants withdrew. Ehud came to him, and he was sitting alone by himself, in his upstairs room, where it was cool. Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And as the king arose from his seat, Ehud reached out with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and he thrust it into the king's belly. The hilt, too, went in after the blade, and the fat enclosed around the blade, for he did not draw the sword out of his belly, so it came out behind Then Ehud went out onto the porch and shut the doors of the upstairs room behind him and locked them. And after Ehud had left, the king's servants came. Now, seeing that the doors of the upper room were locked, they said, he must be relieving himself in the inner part of the cool room. They waited until they became embarrassed. But he still didn't open the doors of the upstairs room, so they took the key and opened them. And there before them lay their master, dead on the ground. But while they were delaying, Ehud escaped. He passed beyond the quarries and arrived safely in Seirah. Upon arriving in the hills of Ephraim, he began sounding the call and the shofar, and the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country. He himself took the lead. He said to them, follow me, 
Because Adonai has given your enemy Moab into your hands. They went down after him, seized the fords of the Jordan opposite Moab and permitted no one to cross. And on that occasion they defeated Moab, some 10,000 men, all tough, experienced soldiers, not one of them escaped. Thus was Moab subdued that day under the power of Israel. Then the land had rest for 80 years. After Ehud came Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 Philistines with an ox goad. And he too rescued Israel. Experientially speaking, the current generation of the 12 tribes did not know the holy war fought by their fathers and grandfathers in order to settle this land of Canaan. Thus, they possessed a pretty indifferent, kind of a naive attitude about how they had arrived at their current relatively peaceful and easy situation. Now, to be fair, Joshua and his generation, and then the younger one he led into battle, also went through a learning process. They listened to God and obeyed, and thus Jericho literally fell into their hands. But then almost immediately, they felt all full of themselves. And they decided to go to battle against the residents of Ai, according to their own strategies and their own might. And of course, they were soundly defeated. After their loss, they realized their error. They repented. And then under the Lord's leadership, they attacked Ai again, and then they won. So while we can certainly see that this new generation of Hebrews in Canaan, who were the beneficiaries of all their parents' sacrifices and courage, ought to have taken advantage of these hard lessons of history. They did what most new generations do. Felt that the th- they feel that the things of the past have utterly no relevance to them. Therefore, the Lord was going to force them to experience war in order to learn how Holy war is to be fought. And lesson number one was that the Lord only aids Israel when they are obedient and devoted to him. Now, Israel in our day, as during the time of the judges, is just like that new generation who does not realize that they are fighting a holy war. They see little, if any, relevance to their ancient heritage as connected with current events. And they only see their struggles with the Palestinians and a myriad of disparate terrorist groups as a series of battles and tests of will fought in a modern world within a framework of global geopolitics and local personal power agendas with each battle having its own reason and its own outcome. The modern Israeli government and people just can't seem to grasp that just as it was after Joshua's death, there remains a divine purpose for Israel to possess Canaan. Not simply the normal and never-ending struggles for national and tribal dominance that will continue among all men the world over until Messiah returns to put an end to it. Holy war is unlike 
any other kind of war. True holy war is not declared by men. It's ordained by God. There has been and will always be only one holy war. And the first arrow shot in anger to signal its beginning was in Joshua's era. Islamic jihad is not holy war. It's merely another of many religious and cultural wars mankind's history records. So holy war is not fought under a veneer of religious fervor and the outcome decided by the strongest and best armed and most determined. Holy war is God-initiated, God-led battle that has not only divine purposes, but it must be fought according to well-defined divine rules and principles. And the reason for this is because the outcome is not the issue. Because the outcome has already been decided since eternity past. It's the process that's everything. It's the experience that we gain as God's holy warriors whereby we learn who God is that matters. The holy war rules of engagement are primarily stated in the law of Hiram, the law of the ban that we studied in much earlier lessons on the Torah and on, inside the book of Joshua. Frankly, the Lord's holy war rules don't look very much like the Geneva Convention. Nor do they look much like the humanitarian philosophies that Israel operates under in dealing with their ongoing fight for survival. Holy war doesn't involve peace treaties. It doesn't involve prisoner swaps or attempting to minimize damage to enemy cities. It involves the positive identification of evil and then its total eradication of those who embrace it. Not through diplomacy and re-education, but through destruction. Holy war does not end at a treaty table. Holy war ends when God's people join him in total obedience and then evil will exist no more. Folks, underneath all of this is something that verse 2 states so succinctly and it applies to all who call upon the name of the Lord, whether Jew or Gentile, in any generation, past or future. The Lord is going to see to it that we, his devoted followers, his earthly army, we're going to be forced to learn the art of war. We have no choice. And when I say war, I mean spiritual war. War that even though it begins with prayer, it most definitely involves physical acts, willful decisions, hard and perhaps dangerous work, and at times great personal sacrifice. 
I'm not saying anything here you probably haven't heard from countless pastors and evangelists that as the believers of the God of Israel, the context of our lives is actually played out in the heavenlies, even though it's largely invisible to us. It only seems to be an earthly physical struggle. But what you may not hear quite as often is that it is the Lord's will that every single one who makes that choice to serve him is drafted into his army. You will face battle. You will experience war. No exceptions. Every soldier is destined for the front. There's no cooks and orderlies to whom God assigns cushy jobs that keeps them far from the conflict, in the rear, safe. There's only those who accept that they are in a state of war and that they are God's holy warriors. And so put on that full armor of God and engage the enemy and then there's those who simply deny it and they shrink away in constant fear and they are in constant defeat. Let me say that again. As believers, we are destined for warfare as much as we're destined for heaven. The two go hand in hand. Holy war is our job. That's what we're here for. God has created us. He saved us. He separated us away from those marked for destruction for that very purpose. The only question is, will you allow yourself to be trained and used effectively or will you, will you don that battle gear? Will you follow orders and face the enemy or are you going to refuse to serve and you're going to hide, thinking you can avoid the effort and danger. Israel at the time of the judges generally chose the latter. They figured they'd compromise, make peace, rather than continue the war. The consequence was that God told Israel that they can try as they might to make peace, but he was going to cause that peace to fail. The thing is, you see, God has a nearly endless supply of people, then it was the Canaanites, to harass Israel. An endless supply. And he doesn't hesitate to use them. He didn't then. He doesn't hesitate now. Verse 3 begins a list of the various nations that God allowed to stay in Israel to be a constant source of trouble. The five princes of the Philistines are referring to the five Philistine kings who ruled over five city-states uh, along the Mediterranean coast. Then, of course, there were the Canaanites who were the direct descendants of Canaan and then less, some other less distinct groups of people who lived in the land of Canaan and were thus given that general title. In addition, we're told about the inhabitants of the city-state of Sidon, which is up north here. All right. And 
they were a great and powerful people who resided along the northern coast of, uh, of Canaan. And then there were the Hivites who lived up in the northern hill country of uh, Canaan. And what we get is a picture that these people who were ordained by God to stay in the land just dotted that land and crisscrossed it from north to south and east to west. Okay? Like craters on a moon, on the moon. I mean, there would be no Israelite tribe. There would be no clan of any tribe that wouldn't be contending with Gentiles sooner or later. Then the results of all this were not only predictable, but they were divinely ordained. So verse 7 now sets the stage for the entrance of the first judge of Israel. It says that the people of Israel did what was evil from Adonai's perspective. Oh my, what an important little phrase that's in the middle of that sentence. It wasn't from Israel's perspective that they were doing evil, but it sure was from God's. I could probably take several minutes to outline examples of the many questionable actions and attitudes that some Christians and some entire denominations have adopted that is so far from scriptural instruction that one wonders how it ever came about. But instead, I'm going to merely point out that from their own perspective, they're not doing anything wrong. They're not attempting evil, or they wouldn't be doing it. The Israelites of the judges' era felt exactly the same. And we're going to have several illustrations of that attitude over the next few chapters. In the end, however, God didn't buy their rationalizations and excuses, nor did he accept their denials. Disobedience is disobedience. Whether from willful ignorance of the law or from willful intention to violate it. He has given them a manual for living a redeemed lifestyle in the Torah. He's told them to use it. And they have instead chosen to incorporate some of their own ideas and to disregard many of God's commands. But at the bottom of it all was idolatry. Israel adopted some of the Canaanite gods into their worship practices. And the result in time was the Lord's anger against them. And that was when a ruler came down in subjugated parts of Israel. And his name was Kushan Rish Atayim. Now, Kushan means Kush. Meaning that this king was a descendant of Kush and very probably was a black man. It is said by most scholars that this man came from an area near the Euphrates River. Now, this name for him is Hebrew. So it could not have been this actual king's foreign name. Rather, it's a title that roughly translates means that double wicked Cushite. They didn't like him too much. Now, we have an interesting problem here. Follow me on this. Kushan Rish Atayim conquered the southern tribal areas 
of uh, Israel, even though we're told in verse 8 that he was from Aram Naharaim. Aram is located far to the north, off this map to the north. So ostensibly what we have is, first, Kushan was a northerner. Second, he was of the tribe of Cush. Third, he attacked the southern Israelite tribes. That doesn't make a lot of sense. Why would he have led his army all that way only to attack the southern tribes? It defies any known political or military agenda. What we have to understand when reading these historical accounts in the Bible is that there are good reasons that one nation attacks another. Just like it is in our day. Whether it was for food or precious metals or simply a desire to expand their empire, there was logic behind their decision to go to war. However, what we also find is that Jewish scholars have long known that the words Aram and Edom Aram and Edom are often transposed in, the, in our Bibles. Okay? It's a rather common error. Why? Because Aram is spelled in Hebrew Resh Mame and Edom is spelled Dalit Mame. Okay? And a Resh and a Dalit Take a look at this. They're almost identical in how they look. They were regular copyist errors. Therefore, it is more than speculation. It's pretty certain that Kushan was actually from the area of Edom, not Aram, which is where the Kushites were known to live. And Edom, of course, is located in the southern desert regions adjacent to the southern tribes now that makes sense okay so now we have the first part of the god pattern for the era of the judges being established for us a pattern that we're going to see all throughout the book of judges first the people sin idolatry in this case second the lord declares them guilty and he punishes them with oppression from a gentile nation Next is what happens in verse 9. The people cry out to God to save them from this oppression. Fourth, God has pity. And in turn, he raises up a savior to rescue them. The Hebrew word, this is very cool, for savior, used here in Judges, has a very familiar sounding tone to it. Yasha. Yasha. The word Yehoshua, Yeshua, sounds so very similar because they're from the same root word. The book of Judges refers to these saviors in a general way as Shoftim, Judges, but their initial purpose is to Yasha, to save, to rescue. Only later, after rescuing some Israelite tribe or another, and again, generally speaking, do they later turn into magistrates and sources of wisdom? 
And the first judge that's raised up is a rather logical choice. Othniel, younger brother of Caleb, husband to Caleb's daughter, Achsah. Now I say it's a logical choice because it was this same man who won the hill country of the south from some Anakim descendants do a, a challenge from his older brother right, with Aksa as the prize. Now, why would Aksa be such an attraction for Othniel that he would risk his life like that? I mean, was her beauty, beauty or charm that tremendous? Hardly. Understand, from a clan perspective, the brother next in line in the Caleb clan who marries that chief clansman's daughter makes it a lead pipe cinch that Othniel would eventually become the new clan leader. Right? Thus, the reward was worth the risk. Okay. Further, it's equally as obvious that the warrior leader Othniel must have been considerably younger than Caleb, who was one of the twelve spies set out by Moses so many years earlier. Otherwise, he would not have been able to lead the troops personally into battle. Now, in verse 10, we get a statement that sounds simple enough, but it opens up many questions and not just a small dilemma. The statement is, the spirit of Yehovah came upon him, Othniel, and he judged Israel. Now, as we've discussed on numerous occasions, there is perhaps no more difficult person or essence or manifestation of the Godhead to describe than the Holy Spirit. And we also have this equally difficult challenge of trying to understand what, if any, difference there is between the concepts of the Holy Spirit being upon someone versus the Holy Spirit being around someone versus the Holy Spirit dwelling in someone. Let's talk about that for a few minutes. Now, although we often skip right over it to seemingly greater theological issues, fundamental to our understanding ought to be the answer to a very basic question. What is the Spirit of God and what does He do? The Spirit of God is the spiritual essence or spiritual mechanism that creates or introduces life both into the world of nature and to a human being. For humans, there are two discernible aspects of the work of the Spirit. First is is this kind of life spark that is given that causes general physical human life by means of the normal birth process and then our ongoing existence and operation in the physical realm that we're all familiar with. The second aspect of the work of the spirit in humans is that it provides a means of eternal life for operation of our spiritual souls in a spiritual realm And it occurs by divine declaration. 
Now one could make the case that for mankind the Spirit of God first enables generation of life pregnancy and childbirth and then enables regeneration to a higher life for a select group of humans. Now follow me because I think this is not just for scholars or pastors to understand. Okay? Particularly in the Old Testament, the spirit of Jehovah is a spirit of wisdom and understanding, of counsel, a spirit of strength, and of proper fear and awe and knowledge of the Lord. In Judges... The Spirit of God is usually an enabling power. It's a power given or loaned to a human to carry out a special assignment of a heavenly purpose. And it's by means of heavenly direction. Otherwise, this assignment could not be done, or at least it couldn't produce an outcome that's in harmony with the will of God if it were just humanly directed. The expression, the spirit of Jehovah came upon or befell him, indicates a supernatural and an extraordinary influence of God's spirit upon a human spirit. It's like something that only a handful of people in the Old Testament were ever going to experience. However, this isn't all that nice and neat because there is yet another expression of the work of the Holy Spirit upon men that we'll find in Judges chapter 6 when we get to it. In Judges 6.34 we find that the Spirit of God covered Gideon. And indeed, this is an entirely different Hebrew word used in Judges 3.10 than in Judges 6.34 to characterize just how it is that the Spirit of God communicated or interacted or influenced a human. In Judges 3.10, the word used is Hayah. Hayah. Hayah is a rather general term that depending on its form and its context can mean became or come to pass or befall something like that on the other hand in Judges 6.34 where we're told that the Holy Spirit covered Gideon the word is labesh labesh and it usually means to wear something like a garment or something that's put on like an article of clothing or maybe a blanket and it's hard not to see that an entirely different word picture gets drawn for us between the idea of the Holy Spirit befalling or coming upon a man and the Lord clothing a man or covering him in the Holy Spirit like a full-length robe. And when we peel that onion back another layer, we see evidence that when the Holy Spirit, Hayah, comes upon a man, it operates in a manner to try to overcome the resistance of that man's own natural free will such that 
God's will replaces it. While the second and probably different concept of the Holy Spirit covering or clothing Labesh, a human, so fully envelops that person that that person becomes endowed with an ability to perform miraculous deeds, including the ability to prophesy, to perform works that far surpass the human nature from both a courage or a physical strength standpoint. And it was especially this ability to perform bravely in the face of humanly impossible odds against that person or showing equally impossible strength and battlefield skills, that was what most of the judges displayed. Now, I'm not going to go much further because once we enter the New Testament, we have nothing but Greek texts available to us and precise word comparisons between Old Testament Hebrew terms and New Testament Greek terms can become very difficult. And especially so when it comes to trying to determine what exactly is the difference between the Holy Spirit upon, the Holy Spirit enveloping, and the Holy Spirit indwelling. One thing that we do know, the outcome of a believer in Messiah being indwelled of the Holy Spirit since Shavuot, that amazing Shavuot immediately following his death and resurrection, is that something fundamental about our souls and our spirit natures change such that we qualify to live eternally in the presence of a holy God that was not possible up to that point this therefore was definitely not the case with the judges or the prophets so far as we know upon death they went to dwell in a specially prepared earthly chamber that at some point in their history came to be called Abraham's bosom. And this was their temporary spiritual residence, a short-term paradise, until Christ gave them the good news that because of his work, they're now free to leave that chamber and go live with God. Now, Othniel, with the Spirit of God, upon him, upon him, Ayah, went to war with Kushan Rishatayim of Edom to try and eject him and his army from the areas of Judah and southernmost Ephraim. Othniel, meaning Lion of God, prevailed and the area of the promised land under his jurisdiction had rest from oppression for 40 years. The period of rest ended upon the death of Othniel. And typically that is also part of the pattern that a judge will be raised up and be a judge until his death. And that all during his life as a Shofet, he will be victorious against Gentile enemies. Now we come to the final part of the pattern or cycle in Judges verse 12. Even after deliverance, Israel rebels again. 
And God judges them as doing evil. And I think it's significant that sufficient time passes that at least one and often two generations are produced after that primary victory of a judge. And it's the newest generation who, after the death of that judge, didn't experience war. They didn't participate in battle. And so they apostatize. And they cause that next cycle of sin, oppression, punishment, raising up a new judge, and then finally deliverance to start all over again. Now, although verse 12 doesn't tell us precisely what the evil was that this new generation of Israel had committed, you can bet that idolatry was at its core. Because invariably, idolatry played a starring role in all of Israel's apostasies. Now, let me remind you of something we talked about last week. We're going to close with this today. Apostizing does not mean that the people of Israel necessarily renounced Jehovah. Rather, they broke faith with him by mixing the worship of other gods with worship of him. You see, I think something is going to have to fundamentally change in the minds and hearts of we modern believers so that we can see, finally, that behavior plays a key role in how the Lord perceives us and how he deals with us. Particularly when we meet as a congregation, we just love to talk about the world as though we actually shun it or have successfully avoided being tainted by it. Right. Yet, and please understand, I'm talking generalities, I'm not picking on a particular person or behavior. For other than what's inside of us, our outward appearances and behaviors and choices are oftentimes nearly indistinguishable from the unsaved world. We tend to go to the same movies, watch the same TV programs, have the same jobs, react the same way when somebody cuts us off in traffic, our boss or spouse upsets us, and we usually more or less expect our fellowships to operate in the same familiar way as secular governments or organizations operate. It was when Israel became almost indistinguishable from the Canaanites in their appearance, in their behavior, in their choices, in their worship, that God became angry and acted. It didn't matter that organically and internally they were his redeemed. As much as we may wish it otherwise... God watches and he evaluates what we do because since he's the one who has given us redemption he already knows who's redeemed and who's not he doesn't observe our behavior to find out what do you think it must mean in God's perception 
when unless we told somebody that we're Christians, no one might ever have suspected it? Sometimes I think that this widespread use of Christian bumper stickers are there to tell others about our faith. Because by our behavior and lifestyle, that's about the only way anybody might ever know. And the thing is, Israel and the era of the judges merely wanted what we all typically want, but probably shouldn't, to blend in. To not seem odd or out of step. And certainly not to be criticized or ridiculed and told that we're ignorant, we're unintelligent, or full of hate. Because we don't go along with what everybody else wants or the current political correctness. Next week we'll examine the next judge in a long line of judges.